welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. And welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast, episode 136. And my guest this week is Dan Osman, who is a health and well-being coach and educator, a public speaker and a podcast host. Dan hosts his own podcast. It's called Ramblings of a Madman. It's really good. He has some wonderful guests on there and they talk about all sorts of interesting things. He's also the co-host of a podcast called Fitness Unfiltered, which he hosts with Emma Story Gordon, who's a fellow fitness coach, and Dr. Mike the Second, who's a previous guest of the show. And that's a very good episode of Proper Mental, actually, if you want to go back and check that out. But in this episode, I chatted to Dan about his background and growing up and his relationship with himself growing up and how that led him into the world of fitness and how he went on to become a coach. We chat about his own experiences with mental ill health and with suicidal thoughts and the impact that this has had on his coaching process, on the way he works with his clients and the way that he sees the world in general. We talk about all sorts of things, things like identity and avoidance, choosing to get help, making big changes. And we spend quite a bit of time talking about body image, particularly body image in men and some of the societal reasons that affect how men see themselves and how they feel about their bodies. And that was a fascinating part of the conversation to me. In fact, there's a lot of fascinating parts to this conversation because there's a lot of parts And there's so many things that me and Dan were chatting about that part of me was thinking, oh, I could do a whole hour on this. Let's really get into this. But because I've kind of followed Dan on socials for a while and I've listened to his podcast, I know that there's loads of other things that he's really good at talking about. And I kind of wanted to get to them too. So I was torn. I was torn between making this an episode about one thing or whether to kind of explore in all sorts of different things. And that's kind of the route we went down in the end. But Dan writes really well about mental health and about life in general, really. He talks about these things really well. And so it was great to get the opportunity to pick his brains and just uh, hear some of his thoughts and ideas about this stuff. And yeah, it's fair to say the conversation goes everywhere and to a lot of places that I don't think either of us expected, to be honest. We actually had a really nice moment after we finished recording. Um, I'd press stop and we were just having a bit of a chat and saying goodbye and all that stuff. And going into this episode, I've not recorded for a couple of weeks and... I've had a bit of a wobble with my mental health. Nothing big, but it's been a tough couple of weeks. And going into this recording, I was feeling incredibly anxious, which is a strange thing to say after 135 episodes. But that's just how this stuff works sometimes. Um, but we did the episodes and I, I really, really enjoyed. And then afterwards, Dan just happened to mention that he was feeling really anxious going into it. And his reasons were completely different from mine. He'd been up for a few nights in a row with a teething baby and was massively over-caffeinated to get himself through. So he was jangling a bit. But it was just something really, really nice about two men who don't know each other at all, who'd only just met really. And one of them saying, God, I was really anxious before that and I'm not anymore. And then I was able to say, oh, I was really anxious too, but I'm not anymore. And it was just like this really nice moment, I think, of both me and Dan being able to practice what we preach about talking about mental health and vulnerability and stuff like that so yeah that was lovely so huge thanks to Dan for that and huge thanks for him coming on and for his time because he's a wonderful man I liked him a lot and I felt that I learned a lot from speaking to him which is always a good thing 
go and give him a follow on social media. I think Instagram is where he's most active, at the.dan.osman. His content is wonderful, and he always gives me plenty to think about with his posts. And his podcast is called Ramblings of a Madman. With Dan Osman, go and check that out too. Everything you need to know about me is in the episode notes as well. But what I'd really like you to do is go and leave a review for this episode or any others that you choose to listen to. They make such a difference. I know it's a podcast cliche, but yeah, if you could take a couple of minutes to leave me a review, it'd be very much appreciated. If the world of health and fitness is your thing, there's a couple of episodes I'll quickly recommend before we get on with it. There's the Dr. Mike episode that I've already mentioned. That's really good. I've also spoke to Ben Coomber. I've spoke to Paul Mort. Emilia Thompson, Bon Allen, who also, as a side note, did a wonderful episode on Dan's podcast. So that's uh, well worth listening to if you're looking for a recommendation to jump in on his. Dr. Brendan Stubbs, and I'm sure there's more than that, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Anyway, enough. This is episode 136 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Dan Osman. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Dan Osman. How are you, mate? I'm really well, thanks, mate. As I, I said, kind of off the recording, I feel hugely honoured to be invited on. So thank you so much. Mate, the honour is mine. Yeah, very, very, very much so. I'm looking uh, looking forward to it, man. Um, I suppose the best place to start, as it often is, is, is right at the beginning, mate. But what was your... Um, what was your route into sort of coaching and fitness and all the things that you you do now? How did you get into that world? It's either I'm, I'm a living, breathing cliche, or if it would seem kind of abstract to a lot of people, but I didn't have a like a, I guess, a, a healthful focus growing up. Like my Mediterranean was, uh, my Mediterranean, my background is very much Mediterranean. So culturally, it was like, we get together, we eat, we're happy, we eat, we're sad, we eat, we, we eat well. And within that kind of being active, movement, sport, I, I played a bit of football as a kid, but I never really embraced physical activity as a teenager. And I, I was in a much larger body at that time. So it wasn't too much on my radar. There was a lot of, I guess, ridicule that came with that. Teenagers are pretty awful anyway. A lot of, as I, I guess most people can attest to, is finding your place in the world as a teenager, not knowing where you really belong. Something that I've kind of come to realise probably through a bit of self-reflection is a bit of an identity thing, like having that Mediterranean background or my family, Turkish Cypriot, but living out in Essex, which is outside of London, where Turkish is like a bit of a hub for Turkish Cypriots and being exposed to more of the culture there and being accepted as one of those, but being where I was not quite being accepted as, as one of yeah. someone over here either, but torn between where do I really belong and where do I really sit? Because often when I'd go to visit friends and family in, in Cyprus and things, it would be, well, it doesn't speak the lingo as fluently as everyone else. And, you know, why don't you bring them this way? All these all these culturally imposed beliefs, I guess. So not really knowing where I belonged. And then the later part of my teens, there was the possibility of going down a less constructive route, getting in with the wrong crowd kind of seeking acceptance in the wrong kind of people just anywhere really because having been either invisible or showing up on people's radar for all the wrong reasons in a much larger body is seeking acceptance the needing to decide like none of this is aligned with my values it doesn't feel me 
And I think that comes into possibly growing up without a real positive male role model either. So still finding my path in that regard. And fitness and health lent itself to just increasing my confidence about me. And ultimately I got into performance baseball, which was Brazilian jiu-jitsu at that time and decided to make the conscious effort to have a bit of time away, ostracize myself from the groups of people. I was kind of within that environment, do a bit of self-reflection. And if I wanted to go to university and further my experiences more than actually the, the interest in coaching and sport, because there wasn't a greatly diverse community where I grew up, but just experiencing what other people were going through, access from different ethnicities, backgrounds, et cetera. I wanted to go to uni and experience that and something I was interested in. I grew this interest in, in sport and physical activity and went the cliche route of doing my level two, wiping sweat off people's machines to PT, took a vested interest in strength and conditioning at that point, decided I wanted to work with athletes, essentially, originally going to do my master's. This is the very shortened version, although it sounds very long. And I got an internship with Saracen's Rugby Club, and that was a bit of a baptism of fire into working with the super adherent to my PT hours of working with the less adherent and, you know, engaging an understanding of there are some psychological implications here because I know if I put a typo on, on their program of let's hypothetically say a thousand burpees, those athletes are going to do it. They're not going to question it. Whereas this mum of two with under five, she's really struggling with motivation just to get the impetus to walk into the gym. So navigating that. And I guess what I can reflect on now is the interpersonal skill was necessary for that. It wasn't really about what I knew. It was how I connected with people. And that became a real point of interest and, the little that I did in in nutrition, I came to find out I needed to explore that a little bit more, did a postgrad in, in performance nutrition. And then just this passion for coaching people and working with people and through a point of some of my own experiences, more empowering them rather than the acts of imprisonment I found a lot of people in is they feel compelled to do these things or they took a vested interest into doing these things for changing themselves, but didn't ultimately change the way they thought about themselves. And that was something that I experienced as well, being in a much larger body and kind of finding my way in the world, so to speak, is that moving over into physique sport is, I was probably the most insecure I'd I'd ever been. And I I moved from this identity shift of seeking acceptance and a home, so to speak, within a community when I was in a much larger body to trying to find that again, shrinking my body down, losing a lot of body fat, because it wasn't really bodybuilding. I was interested in body revealing and getting acceptance there but essentially focusing on external validation which ultimately didn't lead me to be any happier yeah i suppose it's whether like whether you're trying to make dan bigger or smaller it's still the same dan right and that's the that's the part of you that you've got to kind of uh make peace with or learn to love or whatever expression we want to put on it but the the identity stuff you're talking about there that really stood out to me and i I think it's a really neglected part when we talk about mental health and mental well-being and like how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. So much of that is reflected back to us from the world around us, right? And the world we grew up with and and this whole thing of like knowing who we are is so fragile. I think the reason it really jumped out to me is because I moved around a lot as a kid, right? So I started a lot of new schools and every time I started a new school, like I used to move country. So these were big moves. Mm. So every time we started a new school, I was like the kid without, with a different accent, you know? So I became like very chameleon, like, so mm. within like a month of moving somewhere, I'd have a local accent. So I've had it like different people who've known me from different parts of my life would be shocked to how my, even my voice sounds now, you know, but yeah. we start to, 
we start to kind of, when we try and blend in, we lose sight of ourselves. Does that kind of like, does that make sense to you, uh, Dan, when you were talking about your, your, yeah, your background? And- resonates. Yeah. I mean, I guess we almost have to be malleable. And when you describe being that comedian, that's exactly essentially what it was is seeking acceptance and safety. I think is you look, you're looking on, a, if we're looking at a real primitive level and needs being fulfilled is like safety and comfort within a community and, doing anything to appease people so probably there was a lot of people pleasing traits in there but it felt very very disconnected from the person that I wanted to be and I often think about that now with with my own kids in that you want nothing more for them to fit in and be accepted but actually what you come to realize the older you get and wiser you get hopefully is that the worst thing in the world is to be like everyone else but it also takes great courage to be yourself but to be yourself and I don't mean that necessarily from this is me people accept me for who I am it's more the this is me and you know I'm going to be some people's cup of tea I'm not going to be others but essentially this is me I'm I'm being my most authentic self in that I think that's quite an abstract thing for a lot of people to get their heads around so I found myself in like hyper masculine environments I guess having been brought up by a woman so having I guess more effeminate traits and being friends with girls growing up and, you know, having a great relationship with my mother to go into these hyper-masculine kind of gym environments. When I started jujitsu, it was all very like alpha, alpha male motivated kind of discipline ethos, all that elitist mindset. And I could mimic that stuff, but it didn't feel true to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? That's the mimicking, isn't it? That's mm. when we start to play a, play a role, play a part. And the truth is, right, that, you know, as humans, we can be all of these things and that's fluid right so as 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 men it's very very useful for us to be able to tap into that the like the more masculine sides and if we don't and we don't express that then it can kind of spill out in very inappropriate ways but it also the same with the more feminine side right so we need to be able to kind of move between the two almost in a very natural fluid way and that's tough for men you know like a lot of men you'd say to like well you know how in touch with you are with your feminine side or expressing your masculine side and it'd be very hard to get on board with I think yeah there's definitely elements of masculinity and femininity in women and men you know I think we can categorically agree on that but it's the counter narrative is what's challenged because I guess I'm, I'm making assumptions here we're of the similar generation in that generation's gone by and these archetype classic male masculine let's say man box was referred to as the man box less helpful aspects of masculinity we, again from a safety point of view we know that is broadly accepted by most you know we, although you know, part of the female community would ex- accept that some of that's not helpful but f- through most men they will so we know there's some safety in, in behaving that way and with this generational shift and this to speak about being more vulnerable and embodying more feminist and feminine uh, fe- aspects of ourselves that are more feminine is that it's still strange and it's a challenge because the essentially skills we haven't cultivated is not innate to men because it wasn't something we were brought up on so we have this narrative around strength in speaking often but that's something we've never been taught we don't have i say broadly there's lots of men and women it's not distinctly male or female but we don't have these communication skills to articulate what we're experiencing at any one time but in a helpful way you know and I think that is why stuff gets bottled down and this whole stiff upper lip thing and it's expressed in its way in these less helpful aspects which would be you know like I I know something that's distinctly targeted I say targeted identified within men is anger 
Whereas, you know, anger is not inherently bad. It's just when anger is associated with violence, or like I'm not condoning violence here, but, you know, anger and violence are separate. Like arguably anger can come out in a way that's very helpful through helpful discussion, very calm discussion, mutual out of mutual respect to anger and violence, which is unacceptable. And I think about when we think about this in binary terms in what's masculine and what's feminine, that's where a lot of the confusion lies because, there is no safety in being vulnerable because it is, again, abstract to a lot of men out there in that I don't know if I'm going to be accepted. If I wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm, you know, I'm really truthful and honest with you without any vulnerability being reflected back, I know I'm in good company here is there's no guarantee of outcome there. So I could, there's a possibility I'm going to be disappointed from the response I may get or just you're not going to get me. You know, you may that comes with it some sort of, I guess, humiliation on some level or some embarrassment or the possibility that you might share my stories with someone else and that mistrust, which just naturally, I think, makes us withdraw and be less open to yeah. with, with other men. Yeah. If you think you're going to get that thrown back at you in some way, then mm. you kind of double down on all your beliefs, right? Because you don't want to, I think from my own perspective, like, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to admit that I was weak. And then I also wouldn't want to admit, I'm trying to think of the words before it gets too meta, but the person that I was like disclosing to mm. was not going to take it well. So it's easier rather than getting into all that, it's easier just to like double down. Right. And say, fuck yeah, it. I'm just, just not going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, just, I'll, I'll just stew on that myself. Where did your interest in, I guess, in this side of, of health come from if you don't mind me asking yeah from my own experiences man i'd like i've had a couple of breakdowns i've been in, in crisis a, a few times and um yeah I, I kind of i didn't tell anyone when i was poorly ever like i didn't say like oh like people are, you know when people someone usually with like a high profile dies by suicide and everyone goes i had no idea that was me you know mm -hmm. i didn't tell a soul and i was drowning and um when I finally did get to that point, I had a, uh, a planned suicide attempt that was kind of like intercepted basically. And um, I, I just had, to, I had to start talking. I had to do things differently. I'd come to the end of the end of the line and um, yeah, talking about my mental health kind of opened up a whole new world. I didn't know existed. I didn't know about, um, you know, like organizations or charities or support or I did, it did not, I cannot tell you, I didn't know, right. If people think I'm mad when I say this, but I didn't know you could go to your GP about mental health. Like they, it wasn't even on my fucking radar or whatever, whatever it was. I just thought I was going mad. Um, so that, yeah, once I started speaking to people and then every time I'd sort of mentioned something, someone would say like, ah, oh, my sister has anxiety. My uncle died by suicide. And you think, fuck, it's not just me, you know? Mm -hmm. And those sort of convent, uh, those conversations connecting about that stuff was like so nourishing to me. It brought me back to life. You know, it kind of like, it just taught me so much about, uh, about myself, like my own experiences reflected back from other people. And I think that's like a really like powerful thing about when you can talk openly, when you can be vulnerable and just have someone kind of just, just nod along and say, yeah, man, like me too. I get, I get you. That's it. Right. And then it just like, everything feels, uh, well, there's feels a, a loneliness attached to it, isn't it? That part of that struggle is feeling entirely alone, even though you're surrounded by people, it's just feeling misunderstood or not valued or however you may be feeling, which isn't reflection or a slight on anyone that's around you. It's how you're feeling in that situation. So I guess there comes almost some, a lot of shame, I say some, a lot of shame with that in that, you know, you could go to your spouse or you could go to someone important in your life and say, look, I, I don't really know how to express this. I feel really alone and 
that being met with what do you mean alone and kind of you don't have the vocabulary to explore that any further and all you all you gauge from that interaction is a really negative response from this perhaps i don't talk about it which i think you know i, I can perhaps we can go into i can reflect on periods of my life where i've been in the darkest depths and yeah i didn't know how to express that you know i think um i've had passively whenever i talk about suicide and i'm cautious my, my scope of practice is you, you're talking about being in a crisis is that there's this active and passive thought process that people kind of shift between and not not as a as a label or a classification but passive suicidality has been something in my mind a lot of my life and i felt alone in that a lot of time and that switched to active on a few occasions so that first kind of manifested itself in I was probably about 16 I tried to jump in front of a car and then it wasn't until later in my life I, I remembered something which I, I'd obviously put to the back of my mind for good reason I tried to jump out of a window as a child and then that later in life although I then found labels um it was five years or so ago say five years how was my daughter now so she would have been just over one and that shift again to active and kind of coming up with this quite detailed plan of exactly how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it to make sure it wasn't, I wasn't salvageable to make sure this was definitive. And I can't give you the exact circumstances when it popped into my head, but it was just the thought of this won't be my only story. This will be my daughter's story forever. And the thought of, the blame that I imposed on myself for some of my upbringing and some of the things I didn't experience, she'll grow up thinking that was her fault. Mm. And that was my intervention. And how I came about that, I, I can't really tell you because I don't really know. But that was when I decided to do something about it and why I'm very conscious and open speaking about these things now. And I'm, I'm cautious when it's, it's speaking about it from a helpful sense. And what I'm quite aware of is oversharing and what's been called sad fishing publicly so i'll have these conversations if i feel it's the right place to have them but not something i'm overtly shouting from the rooftops about because i do think it's important that people hear these messages because i didn't know of anyone talking about these things when i was experiencing those no one going through anything that i was seemingly going through feeling entirely alone having known of people and known people that would had died by suicide I had gone through phases of my life where I thought that was the most selfish thing in the world to actually, I get it. Like I get mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what took you to that point, Dan? You know, we've talked a bit of like identity and, you know, all the masculinity and not speaking and all that sort of stuff. How did you get to the point where, you know, where these thoughts start to appear and then start, like you say, shifting between active and or passive and active run? I think something I've, struggled with which i'm much better i'm not going to say i'm 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 still a deeply flawed human we're all a working process right but it's something i i feel like i experienced quite younger was this rejection from a parent quite early on so there was always this inherent belief that like of not enoughness of no matter what i did it was never enough so i never felt enough i never felt enough and i was always trying to put that to bed put that to rest it seemed like regardless of how highly academically achieving I was how well I did things I still never felt like it was enough and I think at those moments it was just the cultivation and the, the accumulation of lots of different things at once so when 
my daughter was born. And I, again, I'm conscious when I outlay the circumstance of these things, it's not, no one is to blame per se, it's just a byproduct of the circumstances. So my wife and I have been trying to conceive for like a few years, wasn't happening, been borderline IVF. And then it just happened. She changed her job. It just happened. At that time, her manager made the conscious decision just not to give her her maternity. She was two weeks shy of her probationary period in this new role. Manager's discretion. Anyway, that's that's and that's an entirely different story. So without that, being self-employed, being through a lot of other hit family turmoil and stuff and just stuff from my, my background growing up is the financial implications of that. It was working split shifts at the time. So I was out the house pretty much half five most days. I was coming home for a few hours of an afternoon, working until late, not being the active parent that I wanted to be in terms of what I hadn't experienced and what I had in my head, the usual struggles that new parents have, your whole life being flipped upside down, the broken sleep. There's good reason why they use sleep deprivation for torture, the little bickering in the night, you know, again, just not feeling enough, feeling like I'm overwhelmed here working every hour I possibly can to financially support my family as well as be there in terms of care provision because that something else I think is when I talk about masculinity and femininity femininity and the patriarchy and how it negatively impacts men as well is this this whole provider labeling is sure financial provider but also as a father I want to be a care provider for my children so a lot of these imposed pressures just generally feeling not very great about myself, not necessarily nourishing my body, not taking care of myself. Sleep, lack of nourishment, lack of movement, all of these things, financial constraint, worry, general worries you have as a child, um, with for your child, I should say, of checking in on their breathing. She was not a sleeper at all up until four and yeah, it just it just got into this long process of right. I'm going to do this. I, you know, I was I was going to share details. I don't think that's entirely relevant. But this long drawn out three month process of what I was going to do, when I was going to do it, where I was going to source things, how I was going to secure something, what day I was going to do it, what time I was going to do it, and um, to just breaking down essentially one day and like I need to. And I'd, I've had therapy on and off throughout my life. I was diagnosed with. I say diagnosed with, if we're going to live defined by labels, uh, anxiety and depression when I was at uni in my 20s, my early 20s. So I've been on and off kind of SSRIs and it just got to the point where it was just too much, basically. And I went to my doctor who was never really receptive, just so happened to be my regular doctor wasn't around. And I met this new doctor and they were very empathetic, very understanding took a little bit of extra time than I felt they probably needed and I sought out additional help from there and took some medication took some time to build up was very open and honest with my wife about what I was experiencing she gave me some space we had a few more honest and open conversations about things and things gradually got better from there but a lot of these practices that I put in place is you know as you know anyone that talks about their mental health is it's it's ongoing like you don't reach a point of enlightenment is this practice has to be overseen. You constantly have these support pillars. And if you're not tending to them, if you're not looking after them, you end up in the same space. Yeah, it's like ongoing and also trial and error, right? So sometimes it feels like the rules change and you're like, fuck's sake, this has worked for so long and now it doesn't. (laughs) And now I need to find something else, you know? Uh, But yeah, I think like, I think so many people are going to 
really sort of be nodding along with what you were saying there, Dan. I know certainly I felt like I, like I wanted to, because it's the, the funny thing with the mental health conversation. And of course, for a lot of people, it is just one thing, right? And that's fine. But for also a lot of people, it's, it isn't one thing and it's loads of little things. And those little things in isolation don't seem like things at all. You know, I spoke to a guy called uh, Professor Rory O'Connor, who's like um, been researching suicide for like 25 years. And he, um, he called it the everydayness, you know, and that really landed for me, mm. just those little, those little things. And if you, if you've got a bunch of little things going on and you want that to bubble over, throw in a baby, man, you know, yeah. that's just, it's yeah. definitely, that's how it happened for me when my son was born. It just like, mm. uh, it, yeah, there was just no room. There was no more room and I, and I couldn't absorb it, but yeah, it's those little things, isn't it? those little everyday things that's, um, they all add up, huh? They tell you up and they're obviously exacerbated as well. So almost the, the the closer that glass gets full to tipping over, everything is exacerbated. So that thing that wouldn't be potentially triggering before, like, oh, you know, I've left the house without my lunch or the kids won't get their bloody shoes on to get out of the house. Everything is exacerbated, it's made worse. And that has a knock-on effect, right? Because when you're feeling that way, that starts affecting the relationships in your life as well. So it affects your attitude at work. So work feels like a chore. Then it feels like that's ultimately a little bit more demanding. And I don't know whether you can attest to this, when you're in that headspace as well, just turning up and doing regular stuff is that much more demanding because you're masking to a certain extent. You know, when you're feeling really shit, it's hard work putting on a happy front. So if you have to do that at work, it's then really difficult to do that at home. But then if you've got to be switched on and perform at home as well, that becomes a challenge in itself. And then if you're not effectively communicating, you know, as a setup, you're both sleep deprived, that has negative impacts, you know, general worry about life stuff. Yeah, it just, as you say, it's just the accumulation of a lot. And that can be a little pipette full of water on the top, which is enough just to, to spill over. Yeah. My therapist always says like, it's never the thing. The thing that causes the thing is never the thing. It's all the things up that lead up to the thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. Did, did you have to do a bit of like a, I don't know, like kind of like a life audit then, Dan, you know, when you, you, so you reached out, you start feeling better, you start, you know, getting a handle on this stuff. And then because, um, and I, I say this every other week, I say this people who listen every week will probably be rolling their eyes, but you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick. right? No, no. So, so sometimes, we have to make changes. And I, I firstly, from, from my own experience, the idea of making changes was so scary. That's something else that stopped me reaching out and getting help. Cause it was like, well, I'm not fucking managing very well here, but I am kind of managing. And if I open this fucking shit show to the world, I'm going to have to do a lot of stuff that is really, really scary, you know? Um, but yeah, those are, sometimes we have to make big changes, don't we, to then to kind of allow us to to be well and to to carry on in in through life. Did you have to kind of like look at stuff and make some changes and yeah, move it all absolutely. around? I, I think that really resonates what you just said there because I think in survival mode is you know you can get by, you know you're not doing great, you can acknowledge that, but you know I can get by, and it offers some predictability as well. So when you're in that space of I'm at my threshold now, I'm at my limit, but I know I can get by. If I try this new thing, the prospect of trying this new thing and not knowing what the outcome is going to be, I know that's just going to tip me over the edge. So actually, although I'm miserable right now, chancing something else, I don't know the predict, there's no predictability there and therefore there's no safety there. So I'm safe and comfortable in my own misery because I, that's got a predictable element to it. To try something new and at that time it was 
I guess the financial worry that came with it because I was effectively just covering everything myself, being self-employed as well, is I knew my work habits weren't lending themselves well. So I knew starting work for 6 a.m. in the morning, working through to early afternoon, having a few hours off, then coming back of an evening and missing out on, on regular dad stuff and family stuff and never being there for bath time. So feeling like a failure from that standpoint, because I was never there to put me to sleep, never there to bath her. I was never there to share dinner with my family. And then coming back to obviously a stressed out other half that'd been managing it all herself, because that's an incredibly hard job as well. Um, my, my work hours had to give, and that had to just be in the acceptance of, we're just going to have to live a bit smaller because I can't, I can't keep working these hours because sleep suffering, energy levels are suffering. I'm not the best person I can possibly be for those that I'm supposedly doing it for. And I think that's, that's an element that we all, I guess we all have is that if it fits your narrative, like the stories we tell ourselves and again, maybe that provider classic male archetype mentality on I'm providing for my family, therefore I'm doing my duty. Okay, but if you're providing for your family financially, but you're neglecting them in care, love and attention, are you fulfilling your job? Or is you just told yourself the story that you need to earn lots of money? Yeah, yeah. So very my, so. my work hours were a big, big thing. I think actually taking time away to rest, properly rest, not forced days off where you feel guilty about not doing things that took a long long time and it still does I still I impose rest now but rest days where I don't touch work I try not to touch social media I try not to be and just be present with the family but there is still some that guilt there sometimes because there's always stuff that could be done right making yeah. a conscious effort to nourish my body a bit more you know not skipping breakfast going to all lunchtime some days that would just work for me just because I was so busy other days it would get to the point where I'm just seeking hyper palatable processed foods which is nothing inherently wrong with that but when you're flooding your body with loads of calories having not eaten the whole day doesn't have a great impact on your blood sugar levels your energy levels your mood as a result of that feeling a bit crap because you're not no you're not doing a job there not moving as much so putting in some structured exercise although it wasn't um distinctly every single day just doing something and I decided to invest in a what bike at the time just because I knew gym wasn't guaranteed but for nothing else I could sit on the bike for 10 minutes you know if I needed to um gratitude was something I, I introduced gratitude lists because I'd heard about gratitude again kind of abstract at the time because I think when you're in this dark pattern of thinking gratitude is something you know you should feel and you can do the little lists but feeling grateful for that is distinctly different. So I know like I'm, I'm incredibly privileged. I've got a roof over my head. I've got a wonderful family. But when you're feeling utterly shit, it's yeah, but I don't feel grateful for that right now. I still just feel crap. Like I, I can acknowledge I have these things to be grateful for, but I don't feel grateful for them. So getting more aligned with that, um, trying not to think what else I instill. But a lot of these, I think pillars of support are just autonomous now it's like I, I have to do them I have to go for a little walk down the seafront with the dog whenever that is at some point just to get my headspace I know when things are getting a bit overwhelming and I just need to stick my headphones in not listen to anything but just tidy the kitchen or cook the dinner or little things like that just little little escape places yeah it's, it's funny um 
I think when I had um, Dr. Mike on, actually, he talked about how people, um, you know, it's like the small things, you know, the little mm. 1% stuff, you know, and stuff yeah. that we don't, uh, we kind of think, oh, what's that going to do? But yeah, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, these things all uh, all add up. How about you? What, what, have you got any abstract ones you use to to manage yourself now? That would yeah, be yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got a few. Yeah. I'm a big fan of walking. I'm very lucky that I get to walk to work so I can kind of like you sort of cross two, uh, you know, bridges, cross two bridges, one stone, I was about to say then. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I like to get a walk in and, um, yeah, like exercise helps. Um, I kind of find like I can turn any positive into a negative, right? So sometimes I'll be in a real good gym phase and it'll be really good for mental health. And then I will start really overthinking what I'm eating and how it makes my body look. And then that will become a whole new, um, it's like transferring my safety behaviors, right? Mm. So then I get kind of hung up on that. And then I realize i'm doing it and i think oh this is not so good for you you need to pull all that sort of back and then sometimes i can get lost in work and sometimes so i do i do have things but i, t- I tend to drift you know i'm still sort of catch myself uh you know hiding in the gym from actually like feeling my feelings or hiding in the fridge from feeling my feelings or um so yeah i have a certain level of awareness but then that's that's a tricky thing isn't it it's going from being aware that you do this stuff to changing the behavior like mm. the first step is becoming aware and i suppose like what I, I'm really interested to chat to you about actually is like how, how your own experience informed your coaching, pro, your coaching process, you know, because, um, you know, I say about my own experience with mental health, it made me a more compassionate person. It made me give a shit about other people. And when I didn't care about myself, I found it very difficult to care about anyone else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that something hugely is how I see other people's experiences in the world is massively changed for me being yeah. ill. And, but then as a, as a, as a coach, you know, when you've made these small lifestyle changes and you know how difficult it is to do, um, I'm going to sort of like hazard a bit of a guess that that massively as your, uh, approach to yourself changed then once you get to a place then then your work and how you work with other people would start to change right yeah i think it's just getting more attuned with people and their values and actually humanistic elements aside of like their training history or the, the nutritional habits and things like that because a couple of things you mentioned there really spoke to me in that you're talking about safety behaviors and something that i come across quite frequently is avoidance but different incarnations of it and i've noticed that in myself over the years so having not been engaged in any kind of physical activity to then using physical activity as my escape using control variables around my food as a bit of an avoidance tactic to being hyper productive with work like seemingly do it all spinning all the plates because work can be a huge avoidance thing for me as well and recognizing whether it's I often speak to people, the difference between the intent and the behavior. So working in the health space is we want to advocate for healthful behaviors, but what's the intent there? And is it one of imprisonment or empowerment? So if it's more like a feeling compelled to do something because I have to do this because something catastrophic is going to happen, or I have to do this because it provides the avoidance, or I have to do this. And if I don't do it, it's going to make me get overwhelmed and this can spill over to inappropriate and unhealthy behaviors and it's recognizing whether that's adding to life or taking away from that's something i try to get to the root of with a lot of people because especially with the pursuit of aesthetics is people think that changing the shape of their body naturally i guess injects confidence better self-esteem better feelings of self-worth but 
you can focus on the outer shell, but unless you're doing this internal work, which is getting aligned with your values, why you're doing those things, what they mean to you, if you are compelled to do those things and you find safety in, you know, fulfilling those exercising numerous times a day and things like that, is how would you feel without it? Can we look at other means of filling those gaps now? I guess getting more aligned with people and their, their inner motives for longer term behavior change, because we all know we can instill a few habits here and there, distinct start date definitive end date but what about beyond that mm. um and it's yeah i guess justifiably just trying to work out why people want to change and what's going to lead to the longer term behavior change yeah i suppose that's the thing with health that's it isn't it like this underlying focus on whatever it is doesn't really matter what aspect but this underlying focus on longevity that's important mm. and i suppose in the fitness industry as well there's so much you know everything's in like 12 weeks everything happens in 12 yeah. weeks whether it's a, a plan or a picture, yeah. picture means of health in 12 weeks <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> it yeah when, so if you do you um when people approach you, do you often find that people, you know, they, they come to you because they want to achieve like X, Y, and Z. Um, do they, uh, like, how do people, how do you start bringing this stuff in? Like, how mm. do you, you know, start to talk to people about their values? Cause a lot of people, you know, they don't know what this stuff is. They don't know what their personal value is. Yeah. yeah you're exactly right. I try and communicate a lot of this in essentially my only means of communicating with people now is a uh, only way, <laughs> only way remotely in terms of marketing, what I do is online and you know i'm i'm very conscious and very aware that my content might not be palatable to everyone but the people that i think will need it will see it those are the people that might read captions they might read or, or to be more invested in longer form content that they are not essentially and there's nothing wrong with it i just think people at different points in their journey is that they're not looking at 15 real 15 second reels with you know a, a sensationalist soundbite of this is how you lose fat like they're looking for that deeper work so i find the people that approach me tend to be people that are a bit further down the line so a little bit more autonomous in terms of their exercise habits they've done the odd diet here and there or they've done the transformation pro uh, progress on and off and they've just found it doesn't lead to them actually living better so i think they have a general and the interesting thing, I think, when we talk about self-awareness is you need an element of self-awareness to become more self-aware. They're at that, that second stage, not the, the totally un, unaware where we all just do these behaviours and we're not aware why we do them. So they're, they're normally at, I don't want to say last resort, but they've, they've given these things a go in terms of behaviour change a longer while. And they've reached like the, the point that they can't do it anymore and actually recognize they probably need to do a bit of this deeper work. So even if they don't know what that deeper work is, they've never heard about their values. They might reach out to someone like me where they've maybe mentioned that, what you're doing with your exercise, what you're doing with your nutrition is just scratching the surface. Something like that might ring a bell to them and we'll delve into that a little bit more on, on an initial call. And I try not to overwhelm people with too much of it because even things like journaling, you talk about, oh, let's write about your feelings sorry <laughs> you what <laughs> it's really strange for people to hear those things so it's it's, it's a pro, it's a process that is dependent on the individual in front of me so again everyone's on their own little journey you'll have people that are more attuned with this stuff they're more well read about it so they've done a bit of their research before they approach me maybe but i, I don't find that these days i often have people that have no idea kind of what I'm about. And I'm I'm cautious to to make that sound in the less conceited way possible. But I think the way people invest in services, especially with coaching and something that's so personable and personal these days, is that they do a bit of homework. So it may be that 
someone says to me, oh, you know, I've, I've followed you on Instagram for a year or something like that. And then they felt comfortable to have that conversation. Rarely do I just have someone that's, oh, I just stumbled across your LinkedIn and I thought I'd reach out. Yeah. Yeah. Someone looking for a, a specific type of, yeah, of coach of someone to, to guide them. Yeah. Is that frustrating Dan in the, cause like the fitness industry is like, it's famous for being, it's like the wild West. Let's face it. Right. It can be aspects. Well, we of haven't it got are. the reputation for being the most empathetic bunch. So. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that like, um, you know, that kind of seems, um, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Is that frustrating? Right. Because like there are a load, there are loads of wonderful coaches who all think in very like similar ways to yourself. And obviously mm. everyone can do what the fuck they want. Right. It's not for us to say, say what it is, but like, yeah, I think so many people like have to learn the hard way. Like I know did for fitness, I came to fitness pretty late. Right. And I was very unhealthy for a long time. And then when I did, the gym was where I hid from like my mental health and my demons and stuff like that. And I nearly killed myself in the gym for a couple of years. And um, it took me a long time to kind of, you know, like figure out what was real and what was fake. And now mm. I look back at some of the things that I've done, man, like the, in the name of health are just, some of them are downright unhealthy and some of them are like really just weird and pointless. Um, but to be in that space all the time. So I suppose why I, why I talk about it is because like I'm a coach myself and I'm slightly different. I work in like more in the rehab space. So that's my day job. So I've got one foot in the fitness industry. And so like, I kind of know a bit about it and I'm around it and, you know, and I work in gyms and I work with gyms and stuff like that. And the, the yeah, the hardest thing I've recently thought, I just can't do this anymore. I've recently just come off all like my social media from my business account and just been like, I'm done. I can't, I can't do it. I can't like, I'm sick of people not, not, I don't want to say value in the wrong things. Cause again, people can value whatever they want, you know, but in the rehab world, you see people doing stuff in gyms and you think like, you're going to need my number in a few weeks. That is ridiculous. What are you even doing that for? And I found it really, really frustrating. Mm. And there's that kind of like ringing bells for you. I kind of felt like I went off on a tangent there, mate. I'm not trying. No, no, no. I'm, I was with you. I, was, I don't know whether you sort of nodding along all the way. Yeah. It does become incredibly frustrating. It has done more so in the past. I think I get to a point sometimes where I'm just like, if I don't take a step back from this, this is going to consume me. And I'm I'm quite pretty transparent with like how I communicate. I think in that, you know, it's not for me to judge. And it's, I do look at these things with more compassion because I was that person as well. Right. You know, I remember spending 25 quid a, a week on, of my, of my student loan on my shopping, my food shopping, but they're spending like 75 quid on a alkalining supplement, which is just crazy at the time. I've probably done every diet. I remember nicking my mum's slim fast shakes. Like I've done all that crazy shit. So I can look at that stuff compassionately and, and, and see why people get invested in it. Where it was t- even 10 years ago, an industry of information scarcity is like almost overwhelmed now. And I know that a lot of the people that are vested in the latest diet or, you know, how many calories they should be on or the best workout. I know that's not what they need. And I know there are plenty of accounts out there for that. And I, when you were saying, you know, I just have to come off. That's how I feel a lot of the time, if I'm being entirely honest. Social media is a necessary evil for me. I enjoy it when I enjoy it. And I enjoy it when I can use it on my terms, which is just ultimately what I'm at ease with now. Like I don't necessarily put out content 
with the thought of, I know this is really helpful. And then you see so-and-so with however many millions of followers getting however many likes. Like that is something I've just totally taken myself away from now. But it's more that, can I put this out? Do I think it's helpful? And am I easy with it, regardless of the response it gets? Because I'm never going to be the person that spends 24-7 on, you know, I'm, I'm a family man. I take my daughter to school, I pick her up. You know, I want to take a day off a week with my son. I'm never going to prioritise a Q&A on the Sunday if I don't have the time for that. And I'm just going to, I'm going to do bits and pieces as and when to help people support my business. But ultimately that business is there to, for me to live a fuller life. So with a lot of that stuff that's out there, I I do get frustrated with it, but I, I suppose it's a choice depending on the day, depending on the mood I'm in, how much I'm going to invest in that. And I can, obviously I'm objectively and rationally going through this in my head now, and there'll be days when I'm not. And I'm just like, right, I'm not responding here. I'm reacting to this, but I'm in the knowledge that I'm reacting and I'm going to write it and I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> yeah. Like it's the impulsive a, ape that I am. Yeah, how, as, as we all are. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a strange thing. Sorry, I it? went off on a bit of a tangent. No, not at all. I not... question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure what my question was, Dad. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, um, yeah, it's always... Um, it's just such a funny space, but I think particularly in fitness, I think more than in a lot of places, it's a, a really unusual space. It's unregulated. It's the foundation essentially is capitalism. Not that I'm anti-capitalist, but it's leveraging people's pain is reminding them of everything that makes them unhappy. And I've unknowingly done that in the past because I think we're all, we're, you know, in the fitness industry, there's an, element of enabling to a certain degree there's the glorification of certain aspects of fitness we know is in, entirely unhelpful for people yet things like influencers will use their bodies to promote a certain message regardless of whether the means they got there is unhealthy or not to portray an image of health there's always going to be oh you know the sun's coming out think about how hideous your body is sign up for my eight-week shred program you know is it and that's the stuff that gets to me because i know that taps into to people a a bit cuts a bit deeper i think is the right phrase because it is then just it's just exploiting the vulnerable i think and you know everyone's got businesses to run i just think there's an ethical way of doing it so from my standpoint it's i'm more in the promotion of opening people's eyes to what they can do rather than exploiting what they can't do and reminding them of everything that makes them unhappy and I think there is such a high degree of that because it's, it's easy sales I'm I'm aware of pain points to use a really crass phrase that I could use to to get people onto programs I'm, I'm aware that I could use transformation pictures to promote my business and they're very sellable I've done photo shoot packages in the past and they've been sellouts and there is financial incentive there but I think just how coaching has evolved for me, it's much more about the person. And when I have done those things and I can reflect on those things, it's, it's that was the best of me then, but that's not the best of me now. And I, I know better. And I think there are still people and probably the most frustrating thing is in the industry that know better, but choose not to do better. That's, that's the biggest point of contesting for me because I, I know people will come into the industry and they don't know better. I didn't know better. You know, monkey see, monkey do to a certain degree. So when you have authorities, people that have been around the block for a long time that know better and choose not to do better, that's a real bugbear of mine. I know a big thing in the fitness 
business mentorship space at the moment is solely using before and after images. And if you're not, they won't work with you. That's because it's much easier to sell that stuff. But is that the ethical thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? Mm. You know, again, you're exploiting people that might be in the depths of poor mental health, but, you know, you can get a couple of hundred quid out of them a month. You know, is that the right thing to do? And none of that sits well with me. And, you know, my my moral compass sometimes is cutting my nose off to spite my face because... It, you know it's, it's one of those things when I chose not to use before and after images anymore like the latter part of 2019 it did affect my business massively and I just had to take that I had to take that brunt because it was feeling me filling me with unease I couldn't sleep easy with that and people can and no judgment from me I just can't yeah that's what it comes down to isn't it like what can you what can you live with right mm. what can you you know you just got to cut your own your own path I suppose but yeah no it's fascinating man it really uh really interests me and like so if people are like starting a some sort of fitness journey right so we know we're told all the time physical health and how important it is for mental health mm. what sort of what gets in the way of that right what sort of barriers do you see because we can like i don't know i think hard, one of the hardest things of in coaching is like getting people to do the stuff right and it's really easy to just say well just do it right yeah. but there's so it's like the whole talking thing when you say well talk about your mental health and people are like how when who to <laughs> you know what do i say yeah, right? what do I do? yeah so like you know is is that a tricky part of your your work and i suppose i'm interested in some of the reasons that people kind of get in their own way almost when it comes to this stuff yeah. i think something i've identified in myself i might must attest to but a lot of people that i work with is all or nothing thinking which arguably isn't is less to do about the food and exercise and more towards to, to coin the wanky phrase mindset through the attitudes around the beliefs and the perceptions of themselves is that this I've got to be all on or all off and this this idea of moderation or redefining what moderation means to you is quite difficult for people to get their heads around and exactly what you spoke to earlier that that one percent is when people set goals is firstly because we've been had smart goals drummed down our throats forever is that it always has to be outcome based and actually when it comes to your health is it doesn't have to be a definitive endpoint you know you can just do this stuff because it makes you feel good and if you're gonna warm to something you have to enjoy an element of it so it tends to be with all this all or nothing mentality that people have is i hate running but i know like i need to work on my fitness so i'm going to force myself to run for a month find i hate it even more and then not do that thing. Whereas is there something else you could do the equivalent of that you do enjoy? Is it just like throwing a ball around in the garden for your dog and running around? Is it chasing the kids? You know, is it going Zumba? Is it going swimming? Is it going skipping? Like all of these things that you could do, don't pick the thing that you hate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's Which people do. Yeah. 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 Like, all I, the time. I, I love pizza, but actually I'm not going to eat pizza for the next two months. Why? <laughs> You're never going to warm to it. So I find that that's the biggest barrier to people. And I think that's just behavior change in general. Yeah. And this understanding, I say this understanding, this preconceived notion that this all becomes autonomous. And I think that's one of those things that kind of what we were speaking to about before is that the, the, the ongoing process that this stuff doesn't really become autonomous. You just oversee it and it becomes easier to do it. And that essentially is what, again, to coin the, an unpopular well i think it's unpopular discipline is discipline isn't really about the elitist corporal plunging at 5 a.m every day it's it's just can you convince yourself it's worth doing even when you really 
don't fancy doing it because it's it's layered in value. And what I mean by value is like people have fat loss as a goal, for example. Well, fat loss isn't a personal value, but if you value your health, and actually when we dig in a bit deeper, what does health mean to you? Oh, that means like having meals with my family, setting a good example to my kids because I know they're going to mirror, mirror, mirror my behavior. I want them to eat their fruit and vegetables. You know, I want to be able to run around with them outside. Well, that's health then, isn't it? And, you know, if going to the gym or whatever physical activity you've invested allows you to do more of that, and recover from that and set a good example, then that's that's a good reason to do it. The byproducts that probably will be fat loss, but actually the message and what you value is solidified in health. Yeah, I love that, mate. It's like people think like they yeah, they start off on one journey and then this whole other world kind of gets revealed you know yeah. there's that thing about showing up for yourself right yeah and that's you know and you, it's, it's, like you say it's not about discipline it's just about doing something for you because it's good for you and then having the i don't know it's a fine line isn't it right between being showing yourself compassion and letting yourself off the hook and mm. i always find that's really really interesting so sometimes i can't fucking ask to go to the gym i just don't want to go and like maybe it's because i need to do something else instead maybe i need a nap instead maybe i need to go for a walk instead mm. maybe i need to get my ass to the gym right yeah. and it's it's hard maybe isn't it's it? a compassionate thing to do to force yourself to go yeah so yeah. like that's a tricky one for people isn't it is um and, and with a coach as well when you're trying to kind of like um, help people to to achieve you know whatever it is that they they want to achieve is like when to when to lean in when to pull back how yeah. to help people to learn how to do that for themselves it's a very that's a very a sort of gray area isn't it yeah there's a really interesting book by paul bloom on um, i forget the exact title now but essentially empathy isn't the answer and he has this quote from it which is um being empathetic is entirely unreasonable something along the lines because a lot of the time we can over empathize with ourselves in that moment rather than broadly looking at compassionately what's this to offer and you know we, we, we can see that with, with people that you know from a coaching standpoint that we work with as well is that if they are on the basis of what they share with us am i being too empathetic here and actually what they need is a, a dose of compassion and that you've let yourself off five days this week is this really the most compassionate to do like one or two days you need to remind people of that and i was having this conversation interestingly with someone i work with this morning is that um when people seek accountability it's often distinctly different to giving someone else permission to hold you accountable so i love the idea of accountability but then if you were to turn around to me and say well then you know you you agreed to do that thing i'll say like, what's getting in the way of that and i met that with defense well I'm not in a position for you to hold me accountable. I haven't given you permission to hold me accountable. Therefore, instead of being ready for this process, I just need to be willing to go with the flow of it. Because, sorry, I detached from my, my point about SMART goals is that I think the other thing that people forget is that your goals don't need to be massive. Like, I can just intend on, and it's, again, that 1% is, I don't need to lose a stone in two months. It could be, can I just get up and go for a walk for half an hour before I do anything else. Is that enough? Is that enough of a goal this week? Then when that becomes a little bit easier to do, can I focus on drinking a bit more water? Cool, I've managed that for two weeks. Okay, can I focus on maybe snacking on a piece of fruit and a biscuit instead of five biscuits as a snack? 
but people tend to go again it's that, that all or nothing thing isn't it is i'm not going to have any biscuits or i'm going to walk for an hour every single morning seven days a week you know people think tend to think too grand and focus on the outcome instead of why they're doing what they're doing yeah and we're programmed for that right like the the messaging from you know from everything from advertising in general right make Societal, us feel less than. Questions, yeah yeah. Absolutely. So we always have to go and do all the things all at once. But yeah, that um that makes a lot of sense, man. There's a lot of power in small wins, right? Small wins. Absolutely. Stack up. And that goes the other way as well, I think, sometimes is that a lot of people look to the one percent. They look to the the one percent of what the ten percent of outliers are doing instead of focusing on the big rocks. So it's that magpie syndrome, isn't it? It's like the latest shiny thing. And we find that with and the, 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 don't get me wrong, I'll caveat what I'm going to say now, because all of these things have validity, is that it might be like nasal breathing or red light exposure or cold pool plunging. Is Those are the great 1% things once you've taken care of the big rocks. But for a lot of people, it's just getting, onto, getting to bed a little bit earlier. Stop doom scrolling social media till midnight. You know, come off social media from eight o'clock in the evening. Establish a consistent bedtime wake up time. Cool, that's enough for this week. Can you just set a timer on your watch so every two hours, unless you're in a meeting, that is, you should get up and just go for a walk around the garden or walk around the block. Like again, all of these tiny little things, but people, they seem so seemingly insignificant. They're almost not worth investing any time in because people think they have to draw a line in the sand and commit to something massive. Yeah, 100%. Man. The key to health is low-hanging fruit. I'm sure of that. Oh, I, could, I go kind of what you just described there. I always say to people, it's like icing a shit cake. You know, like, <laughs> why, why why, bother? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If, you, if your cake is not, like, light and fluffy and well-made yeah. and, you know, in health terms, I'm thinking, yeah, sleep and getting enough water and, yeah. you know, all these things. Yeah, then don't bother icing it. With, if, like you do, you if you're doing all that other stuff, throw the cherries on top. That's absolutely fine, but... You know, as you say, shit cake. Yeah, that's it, man. <laughs> that's not the one. Yeah, yeah that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I, we're, we're all funny, fickle beasts. And I do think compassion is something that was really just out there for me, something I didn't really develop until probably five years ago, being kind to myself. Like I, I thought of myself as a bit of a piece of shit for a long time. And, you know, whether that was my fault or not, that's what I believed. And that regardless of what I did with my body or my my behaviors the way I thought about myself was no different so a lot of people again with the aesthetics pursuit is once I take care of the outer shell right naturally my my body and the way I think about myself is going to change but unless you're prepared to do the inner work it's almost pointless doing the outer work yeah yeah very much so and I like just to kind of like take us home mate because I, I'm very conscious of your time but um, I don't even know what the time is mate I've really enjoyed mate this we've done a whole hour it's yeah, gone really? like a whole, whole hour already that just, that's just flown you. yeah that's amazing <laughs> but um I wanted to get into um uh, body image a little bit uh with you because that, that always interests me obviously body image for women has been a thing since the dawn of time right and like as a as a as a man I found the gym a bit later in life. So I was like deep into my twenties before I did any sort of exercise. I kind of like, I can almost pinpoint for me where I started to give a shit about what I looked like too mm. much, you know? And I, I remember being a, I remember when I was like 18, 19 and I would have had at that time, I would have had a little bit of a belly on me, you know, got my first proper job, started earning like more than just sort of paper round money. So I was going out, you know, three nights a week. And then you start to living in the takeaways and all that sort of stuff. And I remember like, so this would have been like late nineties, 
And I remember like, it was all, that was like a cool thing. Man. No one wanted a six pack. If you had a bit of a belly, you're one of the boys. Cause that meant you were out and you were excited. Yeah. And you would like, you know, you were hanging around. Just rely and on chat, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it now. And like, <laughs> and now, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, I, I didn't start getting hung up on how my body looked until I started training. You know, it's like, it was like a direct thing. As soon as I started lifting weights, I started thinking like, oh, I need to be more shredded or oh, i need to be big i need to be all these um all these things and like like for men it feels like a a reasonably recent thing i think maybe that's only my experience but like obviously you've been around this stuff a lot longer than i have is that have you seen that change a lot like the male impression of um of body image yeah i think just exposure wise definitely my, my time in the fitness industry but i think on a broader societal level probably the last couple of decades has definitely crept in a little bit more and I think that, you know, again, without doubt, this isn't a whataboutism, what women have experienced. And I'm not even going to say evolving, it's just changed a lot. And you can see that in how women's bodies have been portrayed. And again, a lot of that, that objectification of women has fed into the diet culture and the fitness industry, which, you know, we can't ignore that. But that's, we're kind of going from less so, I mean, the first course, it goes back to the 1600s for women. Wow. It's kind of like the, the the two bodies and when you see these contractions and literally pulling apart organs inside I, I i haven't delved into the health implications of that but i'm pretty certain there was some like lethal applications of uh these corset things but then 90s kate moss to how that's changed into more voluptuous more curvy less curvy straighter line more athletic it's constantly changing for women which is for men, it tends to be a little bit more predictable, a little bit more linear. So even if you go back to like Leonardo's Vitruvian Man, the guy with the eight limbs. Yeah, or, yeah. Or um, David, like all the architectures, sculptures from back in Greek mythology, they all tend to be quite muscular and stacked. And through the 80s, 90s, movie stars, they're more jacked. They're bigger. You look at how action man's evolved. You look at how sports evolved and how much money is involved in sport. And this is part of our enabling culture. I think, I don't think we want our, our athletes to get worse. You know, would we go and watch people sprinting in less time? Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of performance enhancing drugs in, in sport. A lot of money to be made. You look at the NFL, how big their athletes are. You look at, our, as I said, our movie stars, at the rock, we look at Thor and, these imposed societal pressures have got greater for men without doubt. You know, we, we look at stats around body dissatisfaction, which I think there's some reassurance in everyone experiences a certain level of body dissatisfaction. I think we, we have this tendency as well to pathologize things in, in health and fitness as in someone's got body image dysmorphia. If they just have a bad body image day. So that's not true. When we're talking about the extent of which body image people experience negative body image that is is this i like to think of it almost like a dimmer switch and it may be for one individual that is being secure around a swimming pool to another person that is they can't leave the house or it affects intimacy with their partner but it's so debilitating you know and that, that's towards the, the more extreme end but for men it tends to be a lot more of what they're being exposed to in the media again from a movie standpoint you, you notice in the movies it's always the the chubbier for want of a better word, guy that never gets the goal or he's the funny one or the point of ridicule. Yeah. Whereas he's the jacked superhero always kisses the girl or boy or whatever your preference is, is 
successful people are more attractive. There's a certain beauty privilege out there. We look at influencers, how they make their money. It's essentially because they are beautiful people that look after themselves and people are positioned as authorities for looking a certain way. So it's all incentivized, you know, if I think from, from a woman's standpoint and how they've been objectified over the years, the counter to objectify women now, instead of address the, the issue that is objectification, that people are way much more than their bodies, it's just almost been to objectify men. Hmm. Yeah. So I think without doubt is longer for women, but men are getting their fair dose. And I think it probably affects them in equal measure, but this is just my hypothesis is that even the research wouldn't reflect that at the moment because yes, the certain femininity and vulnerability that comes with, I'm a bloke. I'm supposed to be hyper-masculine, but actually I'm really concerned about the shape of my body. Like I don't like, Oh, why you get your t-shirt on mate? Oh, you know, a bit of sunburn. Not I'm super conscious about how my body looks at the moment and I'm scared of being humiliated. I don't think you'd have that many men forthcoming about that. Yeah. It's interesting when you bring the masculinity element into it, because I always think like one of the main difference between men and women, when it, it comes to like body image and stuff is like how it's used against us. Right. So if, um, if maybe um, either of us or uh, a female, we're going to get trolled online well, it's much more likely that a female is going to have the way she looks used against her. With us, it's much more likely to be the, like our masculinity that's challenged. Like no one's going to be like, oh, Tom, you look fat. People are going to be, oh, Tom, you you know, they're going to say I'm this or I'm that, you know? And I suppose, yeah, and it's interesting. It's like how we, not just what we will look like, but how we feel about worrying what we look like. Like yeah. another layer to it. That's interesting, dude. I like that a lot. Typically, it's that the biggest distinction, I guess, between how men, uh, how boys and girls were brought up is that self-objectification theory is feminist research, essentially was. I think like more male, more of a male narrative should be involved in that now, is that girls, and by the way, this is not my thought process, but typically and historically are thought of as pretty little things for men, part of the patriarchal structure, reduced to essentially their looks, their fertility and their use of sex objects. That's not my belief, but historically that's what it's been about. Boys are more brought up from a, a, what your bodies are capable of from a functionality point of view. And when we talk about masculinity within that, it taps into something a bit more deeper rooted for men, I think, in that, again, that protector provider thing, in that if you're a protector, you have to physically embody that in some way. And, you know, again, why our heroes look a certain way or whether it's a naturalistic naturalistic fallacy or not, if you think back to from an evolutionary standpoint, it was always the more physically capable people that were able to protect their families or protect their tribes and things like that. So I think there's almost this pressure to physically embody that and this this weird power dynamic that's in, I find this, I don't know whether you've ever found this in the gym now with guys peacocking almost, like this is my space. I've developed imaginary lat syndrome overnight i'm going to take up as much of it as possible and peacock next to the other guy because male gaze is something else to talk about within gyms because nine times out of ten guys are checking out other guys not from a, a sexual preference standpoint just because they are physically comparing themselves because they've got this power dynamic this hierarchy in their mind so it's a fascinating area which is why i, I take such an interest in it and i love talking about it because it's we have this web of influence, which is like these social cultural elements that we're exposed to through the media, exacerbated through social media. We have our peers. So within the fitness industry, everyone's comparing their shape of the bodies to their, you know, their peers. 
they have to embody what they're selling essentially so they feel like they have to use their bodies to sell that and then we go way way back for children and the parental influence of that and you know kids as young as two and three being aware of that you know their outer shell and the impact on the world because it sounds like I'm always hammering my mum I love my mum to bits but I always have to remind my mum not to just tell my daughter how beautiful she is because we celebrate the fact that she's kind that she tries really hard that she you know she was supported someone else and I'm biased I agree she's beautiful but I don't want her to believe her sole purpose in this world is how beautiful she is and I think that is when we're publicly admiring and celebrating the way that people look all the time is we're enabling it, even if we don't know it, you know, we're adding fuel to the fire. And I don't know where that, how that turns out. I don't know how that pans out. And I suspect with social media, it's going to be much like it was with tobacco in the thirties and forties is we got a good idea that inhaling all this smoke into our lungs probably isn't good for our health. We got a good idea that exposure to all these not only beautiful people, but have invested in Photoshop. They've had their pictures augmented. Um, they've invested in cosmetic surgery. They're using performance enhancing drugs. Again, no judgment on those, but I think when it's used to portray a certain message to sell something else. So you've started me off on one now, Tom. <laughs> Sorry, it's time getting carried away now. So um, the last thing I'm, I'm going to say, just and I'm going to stop talking for a second, um, the liver king. So when it came out, the liver king was taking drugs. It's like, no shit. Yeah, of course he was taking drugs. That wasn't the surprise to me. But what I wanted, the part of the narrative that I wanted to draw people's attention to is that when you look at the evidence that was put forward and the guy, Brian, whatever his uh, original surname was, his sole reasoning for being the way he was and looking the way he did was so he could leverage people's pain and exploit their insecurities to sell a product which is the same as everyone else in fitness you know when they you when you go onto someone else's grid posts and it's all of them in a bikini or all of them in trunks and it is sign up to my six week shred and you can look exactly like me but there's no transparency into what went into that process it's exactly the same so when i highlight those things it's more to healthy level of skepticism is needed and an understanding that even if you were to lead a life exactly like that person there's genetic differences as well but it's the exploitative nature of it i think and the way that body ideals are now used to sell to people that i don't necessarily agree with yeah yeah it gets really oh, that's really a lot there oh mate i love it i'm here for it man i don't I'm know here for i'm it. not I'm not <laughs> I spoke way too much. Not at all. That's it. You know, that, I always think like if I listen back to an episode and I think the more of me in it, then the harder or worse episode it's been. Right. So the idea is to have less me and more of you. That's when the magic happens. So, uh, so no, it's a good, a good thing, but just to kind of, just to touch on a little bit of that body image stuff, mate. Um, you did a post the other day, you put it up the other day and you, uh, it was you, you on the beach with your family. And in that post, you talked about, um, over times when you've, uh, struggled with like body image. And you said that when you were in like the best possible, almost on stage shape is when you felt most self-conscious. Mm. And whereas now, like when you're on the beach with your family, it doesn't cross your mind when you take your top off. And I was just wondering, like, how do we change that? Right. How do we get to like, I don't want to be, be on the, on the beach with my top off to suddenly like, not suddenly, sorry, that, that I didn't mean to say it like that. How do I go from like not wanting to take my top off to wanting to take my top off? That process fascinates me because I think a lot of people, myself included, 
Um, and the reason the post spoke to me is because I was on the beach with my kids last week and I felt really funny about taking my top off. Right. Um, I don't want to see my kids feeling me feeling funny about taking my top off. So like, yeah, how do we, if someone was, if you're working with someone, shall we say, and they had that, they were having that experience. How do you start to kind of like, you know, dig around the edges of that to get people to, uh, to maybe change whether they want to take the top off at the beach. Yeah, again, it's that ongoing work. I, I really wish I had a soundbite that would resolve all that. But I, I think just to give some context into that a little bit more is that it was actually my wife that drew my my kind of attention to it. It actually went, oh, like, well done. Like, not pat- non-patronising way, because I guess it's stuff that I've, we've been together for a long time, so it's stuff I've shared with her over the years. It's, and she's obviously noticed, like, I, I would never go to the beach. In my, that's the first time I've ever been. So I've lived this way, so at least half an hour from the sea my whole life, apart from going off to uni for a few years, I've never been to my local beach and taken my shirt off before for fear of bumping into someone that may judge me because this embellished and evangelized version of health that all of us in the fitness industry portray is that it's become, and I think the, the, the reason why people are so invested in having their bodies look a certain way is not necessarily that they're chasing perfection, I think they're just trying to meet the new normative standards. And because the new normative standards in fitness is that everyone walks around with a six pack, three, six, five is fit and healthy is the truth. Isn't the truth, which is why I'm very conscious with my messaging now is I'm always going to share that. And I think even the re- the research reflects that we have a certain body ideal in mind, but once that's closer to being achieved, our body image actually negatively impacted. So people go to great lengths. So I mean, again, using bodybuilding as an example of that is that my my experience of my last show was I was probably feeling my best eight weeks before my show. And after that, the links you have to go to in terms of excessively exercising, more dieting, just generally having no ambition or, or, or will to live apart from just training and eating was so far removed from that show day and i think uh, you know that's uh, a lot of people attest to that as well so i think it's again when you're working with someone it's getting aligned with their values and actually having reasonable compassionate and rational conversations around this may be the ambition that you have this is what it's going to take to get there i'm I'm very much for body autonomy but that comes from informed choice so with my messaging there's so much out there of the glorified six pack ideal is that's cool that's possible but this is what you might have to experience it is that aligned with your values if it's not it's unlikely you're going to get there and we can work towards being okay with that we can focus a bit more on body neutrality being really grateful for what your body can do and i mean the innate functions like digesting your food can we focus on body functionality can we focus on performance aspects can we focus on you know the fact that you can't run for more than 1k at the moment but then six six weeks down the line you can run 3k without having to stop you know can we focus on all these other aspects the byproduct might be aesthetics but if we can layer that with performance elements and again from a body neutrality standpoint is understanding that your your outer shell is the least interesting thing about you which is a bit of a coined phrase is people do have an interest in it but it is actually the least interesting thing about you because when you speak to your loved ones they don't care what weight you are they don't care what you look like you know can you celebrate the fact that you're a kind considerate person can you start giving other people compliments 
about those aspects of themselves that don't revolve around your body? Can we impose some boundaries around conversations about your body if we find that's commonplace? Growing up, you know, again, part of the Mediterranean culture is literally the first thing people com com comment on is your appearance. Lost count of the amount of strange Turks that told me I was too fat. But that's enabled by maybe my grandparents that were there at the time. And, you know, you, you would hope that a grandparent stopping. But as an adult now is if I'm going through potentially body conscious period of time, it would just be shutting down body talk, shutting down calorie talk. My, you know, my mum might say something like my poor mum. Jeez. It's because she's the close. Well, she's her and my sister might not, you know, the ones I'm close to, but it's I'm having a good day or a bad day with food or I'm being good or I'm being bad or how many calories is this? I, sh I shut down all that talk in front of the kids for them and for me, you know, and I think it's having this awareness of what's helping you and hindering you. And, you know, some of this is exploratory. In that I know I haven't really given you a distinct answer now, but through the coaching practices, I'll have these discussions with people, which is why I'm, I'm kind of so intent on conversing with them. And that's maybe, I don't know, something you, you may or may not agree with. Part of coaching in fitness is, has become this interchangeable used phrase. Essentially, there's a lot of delivered products which are being called coaching. So here's your training plan, here's your macros, off you pop, let me know what your stats are doing and we'll update you from there. Whereas coaching for me is this exploratory process of asking important questions, gauging where people are at, getting in tune with their thoughts and feelings around what they're doing, why they're doing them. And you can only really get that through depth of conversation, I think, whether that's the cathartic written act and through self-reflections or it's conversational. So the coaching practice for me has to be cathartic, reflection based which is can be a mixture for the people that i work with or a little bit more exploratory through conversation because i don't think it is coaching when it's just here's your prescriptive list of instructions off you go yeah yeah i love that mate i think any of the big sort of realizations that i've had with with regards to my own mental health my own behavior how i show up I might have been led down a certain path, you know, I might have been, uh, something might have been suggested, but it's all stuff that when you work this stuff out by yourself, you know, and we just need, sometimes need a bit of hand getting a ball rolling and mm. then um, we're all more than capable, right? We're all more than capable of doing the rest. Just need a nudge. Mate, I'm going to let you go. I've uh, conscious of your time, but I enjoyed that immensely i felt like we went my friend everywhere come, so sick. come on mine and reciprocate I'll, oh I'll, mate i'd love um, that man yeah, yeah that'd be really cool but yeah thank you so much man um no, yeah i, I really I, appreciate I really it enjoyed the chat. as i said i've got I've, my phone's over there i've got no concept of time i don't know how long we've been chatting big up to the proper mental podcast the proper mental podcast <laughs>